Welcome to the Accelerator Podcast. I'm your host, Monty King, and today I'm excited to have Steve Wood and Bill Kanaski from Courtroom Sciences, Inc. join me for another episode. Guys, how are you doing? It's about time we got this. Yeah, going. I mean, come on. This has like been rescheduled on my calendar 50 times. Come on, King. It's it's me. I'm difficult. I know. I mean, I, I apologize. With, I'm sorry, we're busy. We're busy guys. We're busy guys here. <laughs> with that said, uh, no, we appreciate being here. Thanks for having us on. I know oh, we yeah, have, one you. of us have done a podcast solo uh, on on your podcast before, so it's good to get us all together. Yeah, I, I like a, a Bill's comment. This is just going to be a royal rumble. So let's just get yeah. That's right. Um, so you guys have been traveling uh, a lot recently. I, I've seen some updates uh, going all across the country, uh, different shows, different speaking events. Can you guys um, give us an update on what's been going on since the last time we caught up? Oh, man, that's a good one. Steve, why don't you talk about that? You just did one out in uh, Arizona. Yeah, so I, I just did a speech in, uh, in Arizona to, to a medical malpractice group and you know, I think what we've been seeing now is a, a, a kind of change in the way that people are looking at how they're working up cases. Um, we, Bill and I always talk a lot about early case management and getting us involved early pre-mediation, you know, working with witnesses and focusing on a lot of these things. And I think I've seen, and, you know, Bill can chime in on this too, is I've seen definitely a, a lot more interest and a lot more, you know, desire to get us involved and get us involved on cases, not only necessarily saying, well, we'll save you for the case, the big case that we really need you for, whereas everyone's saying, yeah. you know what, a lot more cases are the ones we need you for now. And we're not going to wait just for the big case. Yeah, I would, I would concur with that. The, I mean, the, the message that we're sending pretty strongly and that our clients are certainly um, adhering to is early intervention. There's, there's, you know, I use, I, and Monty, you've seen me speak a million times, but I use that same sports analogy. You know, when you're down 35 to three at halftime, I mean, yeah, there's there's two more quarters of the game left, but you're you're down 35 to three, and there's just no reason for that. So the defense does not have to sit there and be reactive. They can be very proactive, and there's a number of things they can do to be very aggressive and proactive themselves to put themselves in a much better position as they approach a settlement negotiation or mediation, because, you know, when you enter a mediation and the score is 35 to three, I mean, what plaintiff attorney in the right mind would settle for a reasonable amount? They're, they're, they're up 35 to three. There's no reason for that, but you know, if the score is tied at 17, it kind of makes them think, you know, do I really want to put another year, year and a half of expenses, money, time into this case when the score's tied, I don't have that lead. Or, you know, should I settle this one reasonably and go on to the next file? So there's a way for um, the defense to certainly be a deterrent going forward. But, you know, the barrier there is that's going to require, it's going to require time and energy. And yes, it's going to require money to do that much earlier in the case, right? Um, if you... If you're going to wait till the fourth quarter to start throwing the ball and trying to score again, that's, I mean, theoretically it can catch up, but it's just not a very good way to manage litigation. No, I think actually too, one of the things Bill said there was about being a deterrent that him and I, you know, Monty, you and I had talked a little bit offline about this, that I think there's nothing more that, that we enjoy than coming in into a case where plaintiff's counsel thinks they're just going to kind of 
steamroll the defense and that this yeah. is a this is a defendant who has been hit multiple times and this is a defendant that's not doing what it needs to be able to defend itself and then all of a sudden they come in and they're like oh wait a second they've actually pre- well, well they got prepared their witnesses oh wow. Whoop, they got they got a jury guy oh, yeah, helping yeah. to pick the jury and then all of a sudden now they realize that what they thought was easy money now becomes more difficult and i can tell you that for me i love nothing more than than to do that to at least level the playing field a little bit more and you know, give, give the defense bar a lot better opportunity and to be, like I said, be a deterrent so that people know let's not mess with them because they're no longer an easy mark. We're going to have to go find somebody else. I'll take it a step further. I am obsessed with it. I am obsessed with that feeling when a plaintiff attorney comes into these depositions of key, you know, um, defense fact witnesses, safety directors, you know, corporate uh, representatives and the witness just eats their lunch because they've gone through the appropriate training. They're very well prepared. And the plaintiff's counsel leaves really, really frustrated and mad. That's fantastic. I am obsessed with that. And that can happen every single time if the right things are done ahead of time. But the problem that we face is that in a lot of cases that's not done. And these poor witnesses, I'm sorry, I don't care how smart you are. I don't quite frankly, I don't care how well prepared you are by your your defense attorney on the exhibits and the documents. A seasoned, a seasoned, talented plaintiff attorney. Okay. Your your witness has no chance against an attorney like that without advanced training. That's that's a fact. And the plaintiff's bar feasts, this feasts on those types of witnesses. In most cases, it's 100% preventable, but a change in philosophy on the defense side is going to be needed to accomplish that more and more. Have you seen in your experience uh, particular plaintiffs targeting certain companies repeatedly? Well, yeah. If the, if the company has a reputation, that's why I talk about being a, if the company has a reputation for being in an ATM machine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, in fact, uh, and I know this for a fact because uh, plaintiff attorney. It's funny, yeah. You know, this we don't talk about this. Uh, plaintiff attorneys contact me. They love. They love me. Well, they, they don't love me when I'm working against them, but they they like our podcast. Um, I've talked to many of plaintiff attorneys, and they and they tell me that they share all of that information on defendants and how ripe a target is, right? And so that's why the whole. The, it's the perception of being per, the every everybody listening. This. It's the perception of strength and preparation that's going to make you be a deterrent. And when it's the opposite, and you're an ATM machine, they're they're going to keep coming and coming and coming and coming. It's like that stray cat out back. You keep putting food out. They're going to keep they're going to keep coming on your back porch. It's the same thing. And so yeah, um, that does happen all the time. And uh, our clients, the ones that we work with on a regular basis, um, rest assured, uh, they're certainly deterrents and uh, not easy targets. And, and that should be the goal here. So what what are the characteristics, would you say, of an ideal target, someone who's right for the picking from a plaintiff's perspective? Oh, Steve, I, I have a long list here. Steve, yeah. go ahead and get started with this. Uh, I'll, I'll I'll tee it off. I mean, for me, at least the thing I always think about is just where it's clear that there's a lack of preparation. It's clear that. Thank witness, you. 
Yeah, it's, it's clear <laughs> the witnesses haven't been prepared. It's clear that the witnesses aren't familiar with the documents. It's clear the witnesses haven't had emotional issues addressed. I mean, it's, it's clear to opposing counsel that they know when they get involved in a case that you're going to get a safety director or you're going to get a driver who isn't even ready remotely close for the deposition. And you know that you have your script and every trick trap and thing that you're going to do, you're just going to be able to get them on everything. And, you know, and, and Bill and I have seen <clears throat> consistent transcripts that we've read, you know, from similar plaintiff attorneys and, and you see the exact same thing. They just insert case facts that, that fit, but they're using the exact same tactics every single yeah. time. And the, and the witnesses just fall for it every single time. So it's easy for them because they know these are my tricks. These are my traps and I don't have to deviate from them. I don't have to prep much for, for the deposition. I just have to insert case facts and I can use the same ones and, and I'm going to, I'm going to hit on it. Um, but I'll let Bill expand on some of the other ones too. But I think that's one of the first that comes to mind. Secondly, uh, I mean, Man, I'm in every speech. I'm getting in trouble. Every podcast, I'm getting in trouble because I, I I say things that touch a nerve, and a lot of people don't want to hear this. But you know, not all defense counsel are created equal. Some are really, really, really good. Uh, um, others are average, and others, quite frankly, just aren't, aren't aren't good. And the same with the plan bar. You got like fantastic plan attorneys. You got okay plan attorneys. You got so-so eh, plan attorneys. And if a corporation or insurance company is hiring the cheapest attorneys to get the best rates the, and you're going up against a very competent plaintiff attorney you know it's um it's it's not really a fair fight and so if a company has a reputation of hiring you know um defense counsel that are on the cheap it's a it's a different type of defense. It's a different type of service, and I think that's another uh, factor in which the plan attorney kind of knows going in. Hey, um, I I know I can get some place here in in discovery um, because the, the, my adversary is not as strong as maybe another um, adversary. So um, our again our clients that we work with um, tend to. Um, hire really strong defense counsel and yeah that 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 requires paying them and you're going to pay a higher weight rate but in most cases in life right not always but in most cases in life you're you're going to get what you pay for and if your main objective and this is this is really the problem with the whole insurance defense industry if your number one priority and goal is cost savings you're you're not you're not going to get effectiveness at the same time. It's impossible. You can't you can't have both. It's really hard to get both. Um, and so again, so if a, if a defendant has a reputation of 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 doing that, uh, I would think that would be a, a green light uh, to the plans bar. Yeah, I think the other thing too, Bill, on that and Monty is is you know when you think about cost effectiveness, everyone thinks about let's save let's save on experts, let's save on attorneys, let's save on this, let's save on that you know, and, and then you get whacked at trial or you settle for a, a higher settlement, but you say it, you saved on the front end, but then you get nailed on the back end. I think it makes no sense. Yeah, you know, no, it makes no sense. Like if you had to pay, let's say, for example, you pay a million dollars to get a $5 million settlement. Well, versus, you know, paying $500,000 and getting a $10 million settlement, 
I mean, there's a big difference between that, right? So it's about, about understanding kind of the money that goes out, but at the same time, kind of understanding where your money's going. And I think maybe that sometimes is, is a concern about, do we need these experts? Do we really need these attorneys? Do we really need to spend the money for the mock trial? Do we really need to spend the money to bring Steve and Bill in to proper our witnesses? And I, I think the answer is yes. Um, but it's also getting to understand the value that we bring um, and the value that yeah. other things bring, you know, not just us, but, you know, other experts in the de defense bar and defense attorneys, like Bill said, we work with some really, really, really good attorneys. Um, and bringing well, let me ask you this. With, with that being said, for the people who are um, able to and they want to spend the money to get the return on their investment, so they hire you guys, have you ever walked into one of these clients and thought to yourself, wow, they're really pretty in pretty good shape. I'm not sure if they really needed me or not or what we're going to do with that. Never. No, that's never happened in 21 years of my career. Because listen, the because the, the, peop the people that we're working with, and I, I mean the the key defense witnesses and the, and the corporate representative, I mean, these people don't live in the world of lit litigation. Right. I mean, and even if a witness has been deposed before, oftentimes the first time or two was a really bad experience. Um, number one. And then number two, because the plaintiff's bar is, I mean, again, hats off to them, hats off to them, highly sophisticated, very proactive. They're, you know, they, they evolve very, very quickly. So even if you have a witness that's been deposed six times before and they did fine and those were spread over a 10 year period, well, there, there's new plays in the, in the playbook, right. For the new one. So even I, I would, I would say it's not, you know, where a lot of value here is if you're going to take like a really shitty witness, I, I mean, just epically shitty witness and make them average. I mean, that's a big deal. That is a very, very big deal. And we, and we, and we do that a, a lot. My goal is to get them above average, but some, you know, there's a ceiling effect sometimes depending on who that person is. But when, when you take a good, this is where I have my a huge argument. If you take a good witness and you make them exceptional, it has a, it's a staggering impact on the case. So even when we come in and there are good witnesses, you take them to that next level and they're they're you know they're up at the all-star level makes makes a big difference and also adds to that deterrent effect yeah makes sense let, let me ask you this in regards to depositions so i've got a couple of questions about that are there consequences for refusing to answer a question in a deposition or or can you even plead the fifth in deposition that's a legal question and we're not attorneys um I can give you our consulting perspective is that if a question's asked that arguably violates the uh, attorney client privilege, they, you better not answer that question and your attorney will instruct you to not answer uh, that question and you better keep your mouth shut. That's the one area that um, you cannot, you should not ever answer a question if the attorney client privileges um they're trying to you know get in get, get into those communications outside of that um there are a couple of other examples uh that are okay to not answer and that would be in the um in the um corporate rep deposition 
the plans council is required to give a list of topics to the witness prior to the deposition. And if plans council starts asking questions outside of the parameters of that list, the defense attorney should object and tell the attorney, listen, I'm going to instruct my witness not to answer that question. That's outside of the scope of his testimony or her testimony that you provided to us before. <laughs> uh, my client's not prepared to answer that question. Therefore, I'm going to instruct them not to answer it. So th those are two types of questions that um, it's very, very okay and, and and highly recommended not not to answer. Now, when it comes, again, I am not, I'm not an attorney. Um, I know that um, pleading the fifth is not a, it's not an issue that comes up often in civil uh, litigation. However, there are some cases that we do work on, particularly in the trucking industry, where there may be a crim, a concurring, uh, concurrent criminal um, charge, say against the driver. Um, and their criminal attorney showing up. That may be a time where the criminal attorney is going to instruct the defendant to not answer a question and plead the fifth for that particular reason. I think I think where you look terrible um, is when you're asked a a very fair, straightforward question about the case, and you just refuse to answer that, that, that steve that doesn't happen a lot we see the whole we're gonna get into pivoting oh i love to talk about yeah, pivoting yeah. but yeah but but yeah witness yeah monty witnesses don't like i'm not answering that question right you don't you don't see that very often some witnesses will say well i don't see how that question is relevant and they'll kind of argue with it but then they have to end up cough, coughing up an answer but the worst thing that we see is answering a question by not answering the question which is the political maneuver which is evasion right mm -hmm. where you know i mean look at all these pol this is what these politicians do and you ask them about in immigration and they will go yeah but let's talk about healthcare and they they completely go in a different direction and when a witness starts doing that uh that can absolutely kill their credibility steve yeah, no, I, yeah, I know, I, I know we're going to get into it later, but yeah, pivoting, pivoting is really, really bad. And I think, you know, bad. A, a lot of times, and what we've seen now a lot more with, with politicians and with attorneys is that when witnesses are pivoting, they call them out on it. Right. And they, they'll, they'll drill them and, and they'll highlight the fact that they're not answering the question, which then we've even had from, you know, when we've done mock trials and stuff where we have jurors watching deposition videos and they see some of this kind of back and forth, you know, sometimes the witnesses isn't being as evasive as what it appears, but they're they're feeding off of the reaction of opposing counsel and how opposing counsel is going at them and how opposing counsel is trying to make them look bad to then diminish the credibility of, of the witness. And I think, you know, politicians, they kind of do it to themselves. But I think I've seen times where, you know, some of them, they have answered questions, you know, and, and but they haven't got quite the same, the right answer. They don't like the answer. Therefore, they're going to keep trying to trying to get yeah. the answer that they want. Yeah. Well, in, in regards to pivoting for all of our listeners, go ahead and give us a, a, a clear definition of what pivoting is. And then let's talk oh. about some examples so that we can make sure. Oh, I'm happy to. Yeah, I am, say, I'll I, give I, us the bill. I'm just going to sit back and let him talk yeah, about this here. I know. Okay. Pivoting is a designed evasive maneuver to not answer a question directly because it looks or sounds bad. 
And so where this tends to happen is in two ways. So first way is every every case has bad facts. And so, I mean, every every case has bad facts. Right. And what a good plant attorney is going to just say, well, OK, well, sir or ma'am, isn't it true that you did blank? You did X. Isn't that true? And it's true. I mean, Monty, it's true. It's it's in black and white or it's on the dash. I mean, it is a fact. And it sounds terrible. It looks terrible, but it's a fact. You're stuck with it. They're stuck with it. And the witness, right, can some oftentimes is instructed, which is really, really terrible. And I think is legal malpractice is to say, yeah, but. OK, in fact, this has already happened twice this morning, this morning, because, you know, I can I can ask Steve right now, Steve, isn't it true uh, the Jets lost to the Chiefs last night? Now he now the answer is yes. There's he's not getting out of this, but he's gonna say yeah. But you know those refs sucked, right? And oh man, you know Taylor holding. Swift is a huge distraction, right? And oh man, Aaron Rodgers showed up, another distraction. And he's gonna go on his list of excuses, right? But then a good plaintiff attorney says, well, Steve, that's really nice, but let's get back to the actual question I asked you the first time. The Jets lost last night, and they lost to the Chiefs. In fact, they lost to the Chiefs at home. Isn't that true? Correct. And at some point, Steve's going to be like, yeah, 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 right. Right? And that's that beatdown that you see that's completely unnecessary. So that's, that's, there's, there's issues there because it kills your credibility. It kills your credibility. And now the other area that it happens is with questions that um, assign blame. Okay. So when, uh, in fact, yeah, I mean, look, look no further um, than any of these post game conferences. Right. When they uh, uh, the the press is asking questions about the coach, essentially blaming them for poor coaching decisions uh, rather than just saying no. Right. So if they point out fault, so a plant attorney is going to point out fault to say, for example, to a driver, say, hey, isn't it true? You were the sole cause of this accident. You caused this whole mess because you weren't paying attention. You were speeding. And this whole mess is your fault. Isn't that true? And again, the the tendency is the no comma. Be, so I hate commas. I just hate I would if I get elected to public office, I'm going to eliminate the comma from the English language. It's no comma because and then blah, 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 blah. OK, so anytime a witness is faced with a fact that doesn't look at it, but it's a fact. Or any type of blame, two things happen, either they're being instructed by their attorney to to fight which you're just going to get your ass kicked against a competent plaintiff attorney and kill your credibility. Or even if they're not, we get this fight or flight uh, kick in, right? This fight or flight response to where the, the witness brain is like, Oh shit. Oh shit. (laughs) This looks bad. I better do something. And they start yapping away, trying to save themselves. And that's, and that's the trap. And that's one of the top weaknesses that we see in both deposition and trial testimonies, are our witnesses really losing sight of what the objective is and trying to evade or defend or argue their way out of something? And by the way, the questioner is a professional arguer. You're, you're not going to out-argue a professional arguer and a plaintiff attorney. So it's dumb. Well, I so think we build. teach. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say a part of it, though, you know, is like witnesses will, 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 will be saying, well, I, I didn't do anything wrong and they need to know I didn't do anything wrong or they need to hear, get my, I need to get my side of the story yeah. across if they just knew yeah. this information, da, 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 like, so they want to force things in. Right. 
Yeah. And that's, so what, that's what does pivoting happened. do to the outcomes in your experience that you've seen? Oh, I could tell you what it does. Um, number one, it drives up the settlement value of the case because that deposition is going to suck, particularly if it's on videotape. Because if you have a witness pivoting all over the place on videotape, it looks terrible, kills their credibility, and that can be used as leverage to say, hey, the plaintiff's counsel is going to say, I'm going to play this to a jury. And the jury is not going to believe a word they say. I know it, you know it. And, and so it raises the value of the case. And then when it happens in the courtroom, I mean, if you want to start getting eye rolls from the jury, you want to get a jury frustrated, don't answer questions. Pivot, pivot around them because you come across like a politician. By the way, the whole pivoting tactic was invented in debate theory. It's for politicians. And if you watched any of these debates or even just back and forth with a politician with someone from the media, oh my, that's all they do. Yeah. All they do. They cannot... They cannot accept or admit uh, any fact that goes against them. And then if they get blamed for something, they go on there, you know, no, because, no, because, no, because. Um, and that's not the way to handle those things. We know how to handle it. That is not the way to handle it. It's so all about if, you credibility. See, if you see a, um, a result from either a settlement or a verdict that is considered nuclear, before you know any facts of the case, are you thinking in your mind, I bet someone was pivoting and that's what drove up the, the result? Or is that not, nece not, not necessarily in many of those cases, uh, that's a that's a contributing um, that's a contributing factor. Uh, ab absolutely. But it's it's one of many the, of the contributing uh, factors. But that's combined with all these other factors that we're talking about pretty much um, sets up an equation uh, uh for failure. And you'll find that with any of these nuclear verdicts, it's not, and it's another thing, Steve and I hear, we, we kind of roll our eyes, right? From non-scientists. They just, they, they blame one factor. The jurors are crazy. Yeah. Jurors yeah. are angry. I mean, no, it's, it's never that simple. And that was one of the things I, I, I harp on. And when, you know, when I talk about that stuff is, you know, I was, everyone always says, well, it's kind of the one key take home that you want from this presentation, I always say, stop blaming the damn jurors. Stop assuming that jurors are stupid. Stop trying to, yeah. you know, look in the mirror. At, yeah. Start looking at other aspects, you know, and I think it goes back to what you're saying is did the witnesses pivot, you know, in those nuclear verdicts to Bill's point there, that's usually just one piece <laughs> of the puzzle. A lot of the other stuff we see, like when we're doing mock trials and focus groups is sometimes it's not understanding kind of what your strengths and weaknesses are, or thinking that what was a strength isn't really as strong as you think it is, or, We've even seen it too of how you were approaching the topic or how are you approaching your arguments and articulating your arguments turns off jurors. You know, what you're focusing on and what you're trying to latch onto yeah. pisses jurors off. And then you realize, okay, you got to go in and change your tack in order to do it for trial. The problem is if you haven't done any of that in the lead up to trial, then you're going to do it at mm -hmm. trial. And then you're going to find out after the fact that you pissed jurors off when you could have known that ahead of time and made adjustments when needed. Yep. Should, should you smile during a deposition? Well, if something was genuinely funny, but outside of that, I wouldn't necessarily smile because it would depend on the, I would say the, the personality of opposing counsel too, especially if you're talking about a, a personal injury case or a death case. I mean, you're going to assume that a, a really good plaintiff attorney yeah. is going to, you know, you think he's going to go. Yeah. He's going to go Joe Pesci on in Goodfellas. Yeah. What's so funny? <laughs> what, Funny about me. What's so funny? Funny how? What am I, a clown? I amuse you. I make you laugh. What the fuck is so funny? That, I mean, 
you can't have that happen. So, I mean, I think the clear answer here is really no, no. right? You, should, you shouldn't smile, but let's really define what a smile is. Um, we tell our witnesses, you need to be in job interview demeanor during a deposition and a trial. Um, meaning, how would you sit? What's your body language like? How do you dress? But what's your facial expression? So a lot of, I've heard defense attorneys like, you know, you, you need to be poker faced. I'm like, well, no. No, you don't need to be because that's not really a pleasant professional look. You want to be pleasant and professional, which is typically, again, job interview demeanor where it's it's a more of a pleasantness as opposed to a, you know, should you be smiling with your teeth? No, no. But should you have a pleasant look on your face? Ab absolutely. So switching gears just a little bit, uh, talk to me about written policies. Uh, and, and specifically, you know, we're talking about uh, the trucking industry. What is your opinion on written policies, company policies and procedures? Good thing, bad thing, indifference. Give me your thoughts on that. I'll let you start, Steve, because <laughs> I'll go off, I'll go off the rails if you don't. Yeah. Uh, so they can be good to to some extent, but I mean. Not to what we've seen a lot of this stuff. I mean, a lot of times everybody's run right these policies and procedures without any sort of oversight from the legal, uh, you know, from the legal team, without any sort of contemplation about what would this document look like if it got shoved in my face at the deposition. I mean, everybody wants to write it with the feel good, you know, let's safety is our top priority. Uh that we have safety always number one, always safety at the forefront of our minds. Terrible. Like, who are you trying to convince there? I mean, yeah, it's it's the feel good company narrative. The problem is, okay, think about what happens in a case where one of your drivers is shooting a TikTok video, which I'll let Bill talk about that. Um, huh. You know, shooting a TikTok video while they're driving, then they get into an accident or something. But yeah, yeah, safety first, safety always, safety's at the forefront of your mind. I mean, it just. There, there's there it's all about marketing materials versus thinking about what's going to be an illegal aspect. And I think it needs to be, there can be a mixture of both where you say things that are true to your core values, but at the same time, aren't going to be devastating to you in a deposition or at trial when opposing counsel puts it up on a huge poster board and leaves it up there for the jurors to look at. Yeah. And so the written policies um, tend to have, well, first off, they're, they're authored by people who are not thinking about litigation, number one. Number two, and I think, Steve, did, our, did the good word, bad word paper come out yet? Or is that coming out? No, it's coming out. It's not. Okay, out so, so we have sort of paper later. on this. Yeah. yeah. So there's, we have our, our, the list of good words and the list of bad words. There's a, there's a lot of bad words that are used in policies that are idealistic and extreme. You know, always, never, everything, anything, must, should. These are very bad, bad words. Um, in a litigation uh, context. And again, while these policies are being authored, you're not thinking about deposition or trial testimony or discovery. And so that's kind of the first place uh, that things go uh, wrong. Uh, secondly, uh, you have to understand uh, the, the internal documents, meaning the policies and procedures, uh, the training manuals, okay? This is the first place where plaintiff attorneys go. To look for vulnerability because they're looking for exactly what we just described because here's what they want to this is what reptile is really all about is is hypocrisy it's the perception of hip, it's not just uh, the reptile brain that's all bullshit it, it's the perception of hypocrisy is 
you have all these policies that say X, Y, and Z, but that's not how you run this company. And then they show the case facts and you have clear hypocrisy. That's that's reptile theory 101. Okay, there's no reptile part of the brain. That's all absolutely ridiculous. Um, it's a great marketing plan by the reptile people, um, which has been completely rebranded. We should probably cover that at some point. But that that that's the issue. So you have to. So we tell all our clients to do during our seminars is to say, when Monty, you've seen this, <laughs> particularly in Tennessee, is that everybody go leave this seminar, and the two things you need to check are the language in your policies, review it, and change the bad words to better words. Okay, uh, number one. Number two, you don't need a 75. We, so we were working, uh, I told this story last week. Um, we had a client in Louisiana who uh, attended one of our seminars and comes up after him and he's, you know, hands on his head where, and he gets out his phone and he's got his policy. It was 76 pages, Monty, 76 pages. Now we came back four months later to do part two of that seminar uh, outside New Orleans. No, I'm sorry, Nolans. And 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 he had cut he had cut the policies and procedures down to 26 pages. Because you want to know why? That's 50 pages pretty much of vulnerability that he cut out. Because again, the plan attorney goes right to those policies and procedures, and that's going to be the bar that you've set because they're your freaking policies, right? And then they're going to compare that to how the company actually conducts themselves with the case facts. And that's where the hypocrisy goes. Third, which is no one's been thinking about this, but we've been really selling this really hard. Um, your The language on your corporate website mm -hmm. is just as damaging, if not more damaging as the policies and procedures language, because that's open to the general public. And it comes across as like a false advertising claim. Well, on your website, it says that the company puts safety first at all times above everything else. However, and then they go right to the case facts and show that that's, that's really not how you do it. More hypocrisy. Okay. And so the language in the policies and procedures, the training manuals and the websites are, are the top places where, where, where the plaintiff attorney is going to go to look for ammunition to use against your witnesses. And by the way, it's, it's shooting fish in a barrel. It's easy money, yeah. easy money to get your hands on that stuff and then to show the hypocrisy. So the other thing that we have, um, we, we know for sure, cause Steve and I do this every week. We do focus group research. We do my air. I'm going to ask the air. I'm going to take over this podcast and ask Steve, uh, Dr. Wood, how, how did yours react when a company has this great set of policies, but they're unenforced? How did yours react to that? Oh, they, they absolutely love it. Yeah. Unenforced. Yeah. So again, you could have the greatest policies in the world, but then when the plaintiff attorneys can show, well, hey, no one reads the policies. Yeah. By the way, no one does. B, you don't enforce the policy. Well, I think, Bill, and it goes back yeah. to, you know, Monty, to, a lot of times what happens in these cases, you know, about these policies and procedures is that even if you have certain things that the company did that weren't necessarily, you know, bad and that you could, you have defensible, you know, defensible actions and that you're going to find a lot of these pro plaintiff jurors. A lot of these jurors who are going to want to give money are going to seek out some policy and procedure violations somewhere. And, and it doesn't matter necessarily how egregious it is or, or not. They're just going to say, there's your violation. They violated that policy and procedure. And for a plaintiff juror who's a staunch pro plaintiff juror, 
I was going to say, that's all I need in this case. You know, this, that's all I need to hang my hat on. I go back into the jury deliberation room. And if someone presses me on it and someone tries to challenge me on it, I can just say, yeah. look, there's their policy manuals. They didn't do what they said they did. Case closed. Now, so what's gonna, oh, uh, I'm not, I'm go, not done, Monty. Go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> I'm not go done. Ahead, Bill. <laughs> there's got to be a solution to this, right? Yes. So Because we're saying, hey, cut your policies way down in writing. It's not necessary. Number one, it's just more ammunition for plan attorneys. Number three, newsflash. No one reads them. So it's it's complete. It's just one hundred percent vulnerability. But you have to have it. You have to have it to get certain insurance coverage. It has to say. So you have to cover certain things. But use use the right words. How do you get around this? What do jurors want to see? That jurors want to see communication. Mm-hmm. Okay, You're, they don't give a shit about your policy. They want to say, oh wow, this company has monthly safety meetings. Where, and by the way, there's nothing better in a deposition. When the plaintiff attorney says, well, I noticed here your, your company policy is only 19 pages. That's it. The witness goes, yes, it is. And Well, do you think that's sufficient? Yes, absolutely. How in the world is 19 pages sufficient? Answer, because we cover this verbally, in person or virtually, doesn't matter. We cover this and communicate these issues on a monthly or weekly or by whatever basis with with our team because we find that that's the best way this information sets in and then plan for terry sitting there going huh okay and then you've, you've got them that's what a jury wants to see they want to see the enforcement and then communication of these policies on a regular basis to employees and team members that's what is going to protect you not what's written on the document but I do want to say one other thing, just Monty, for, for your audience and that too, that because we, you, I'm sure you've heard people say it to Bill during presentations and, and we get asked to when we're doing these types of things about, does that mean we should remove any safety language from our website and our policies and procedures manual? Should we stay away from safety? All of a sudden, everybody's like, well, let's dodge safety and not put safety in there. That's not what we're saying, though. That's not what we mean here. We're just meaning going back to what Bill said about these absolute bad words, you know, always must, should, everything. That's what you want to make sure that you're cognizant of, but we don't necessarily want you to run from safety. Sure, sure. And so obviously the best policy is the one that you're enforcing, right? What, whatever that may be. Are there any that you guys would suggest that someone should have in their company policies that maybe you see a lot of people don't? Yeah, and Steve and Dr. Wood already brought this up. Okay, this whole TikTok thing is out of control. <laughs> Steve, I, I sent you another one yesterday. So I, I'm a self-admitted TikTok fan, if not addict. And healthy addiction, right? I think yeah, you said and, and there and, and there are truck drivers broadcasting live, live broadcasting on TikTok and interacting with their audience while they're driving an 80,000 pound truck down the interstate highway. Terrible. Let me terrible let, let me let me repeat that. I want to repeat that one time, one more time. There are truck drivers, and I'm talking a lot of truck drivers that are broadcasting live via TikTok and interacting with their audience while they're driving an eighty thousand pound truck on the interstate highway. Bill, well, Bill, it's hands free though. So, what what's the big deal there? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, there was the Arizona accident in which, the, if you go Google it, it was in Arizona last year where uh, the driver was actively using TikTok 
and uh, caused a crash. And five, it was uh, uh, five people died. It's all mm -hmm. over the news. You can go look it up. Arizona truck crash guy using TikTok, right? Here's the thing. No one has social media. What, one thing we don't see, which I tell every audience, I'm like, you have to make a social media policy two ways. Because number one, you don't want, I don't care if they, I don't care if your driver or your safety driver, I don't care if they're not, it doesn't matter. They shouldn't be posting stuff about work, right? About, you know, wow, this safety meeting was another waste of time, right? They post that. That's bad. A plan attorney is going to find that usually against you, but there has to be specific policies regarding the use of social media while driving, whether it's hands-free or not, um, because that th this trend is highly disturbing. It is spreading. Um, I follow a bunch of drivers on TikTok because I want to see what they're doing. It's just, it's unbelievable. Wasn't um, didn't one have some crazy name too? I can't remember. Remember, I told you you better not get the hitman. The, the hitman. hitman. the hitman. The hitman was. Yeah, I said this guy. If this oh. guy ever gets in a in, in an accident, you don't think they're pulling this TikTok? Yeah, the hitman. That that's a great nickname if you're in litigation. The hitman. Yeah. That's not good. I mean, is, Gee, is why it, do they why do they call you the hitman? Yeah, the material know. sometimes just writes itself. It, it sounds like this could be an opportunity. If you guys have any suggestions for what would be best practices for a social media policy. So any any ideas that you could share with the audience on what does that need to include? You've kind of mentioned some already, but um, just anything off the top of your head that would be good to have in there. Well, you can't, you can't be any. OK, so there's two problems here. One is TikTok specifically. The other one, which is related, it's related because um, it requires interaction with the device. Right. So a hands free. Right. There is no interaction with the device on a phone call. Okay. But if you're using TikTok, obviously you're reading, I mean, you're reading comments from people posting, right. And driving at the same time, that's, that's ridiculous. But the, the other way, the thing that happened actually before the TikTok phenomenon with the drivers is um, they are using their phone as a broadcasting device for YouTube videos um, and, and like Spotify, you know, podcasts and stuff like that, which requires interaction. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, Theoretically, yeah. So I, I said this during a speech and a drive at one of the trucking, uh, one of the state trucking speeches, and one of the people there uh, who had been a driver, um, I'm not sure if he's still a driver, definitely worked for the truck. He raised his hand and said, "But I have all, I have all this hands-free stuff." And what, well, what do you mean? He's like, "Well, I can, I can give voice commands to turn on my phone and go to Spotify and play." you know, Foo Fighters ever along and I don't have to touch a thing. I'm like, okay, well, congratulations. Number one, uh, number two, don't, don't tell me most people are doing that. That's far too cumbersome. Um, so I, I don't, I don't buy that for a second and, uh, they can pretty much figure out on the, um, investigation of your phone, how you were using that phone after the accident. So it's, it's, it's definitely going to come out. But those types of activities with the phone, because remember the phone, a phone, I mean, look at your phone. I mean, Dr. Wood actually talking on the phone. What percentage of phone use is that versus apps, you know, <laughs> Netflix? I mean, it's like 10%, maybe, yeah. maybe yeah. 5%. These phones do way, way, way too much. And um, now I understand drivers 
are bored and they want to listen to, to podcasts. Uh, and I have, I've had drivers come up to me after talks and say, you know what I do? I go, what? They go, I go to my Spotify and I can put, it's called putting something in the queue. So it's like, okay, I know I'm going to drive for the next four hours. Well, I can pick five or four or five one hour podcasts. I can put them in the queue, hit play, start my truck. And I never have to look at the phone until I stop. That's great. The problem is a lot of that's not happening. And we've seen it in many cases. And by the way, the jurors do not like any phone use. They don't like the legal phone use, much less the illegal phone use. Yeah. Yeah. I think a key word I heard you say was interaction, the way they're interacting with it. Right. Because yes, you can have all these voice commands, but you're being distracted because you're interacting with that. Yeah. Uh, That's the point you're making. Right. Yeah. It's distracting. Steve, you were about to say no, I was just, just going to I was just going to say, yeah, I mean, obviously, it's one of those things that opposing counsel is going to look at first. And it, what what are they doing with the phone? And, and jurors, a lot of times, even if any time that, that, that there's vehicle accidents, the first thing jurors seem to always ask, well, what was their cell phone? Where's their cell phone? Were they on their cell phone? So immediately the very first thing that everybody yeah. thinks about nowadays. So I think it's one of those things that the drivers and the company should should have once again a kind of a mindset of, you know, how would this look if if something were to happen? These are the things they're going to look at first. So how do we insulate ourselves against these these areas that we know are vulnerable for attack, and we know for that plaintiff counsel is going to look at first and foremost, like I said, policies, procedures, manuals, and then like I said, cell phone use. Awesome. All right, guys. Well, I I am ready to transition to the tap five. We've we've covered a lot of info uh, and there's a lot more that we could actually um, stay in and discuss, but I want to save that for some future stuff. Uh, So let's transition if you guys don't mind. So first question, and I had to reshuffle these because you both know this drill, right? Uh, First question, uh, let's go to to Steve, then we'll go to Bill. What is your favorite word? My favorite word? Yes. Uh, I don't know if we can say it on the podcast. Do we have an explicit? Do we have an explicit? Yeah, this, e is gonna on turn the in, this is going to turn into a Bill Burr podcast really, <laughs> yeah. really quickly. Um, outside of outside of ones that I outside of ones that I can't can't say on here. Um, I think it would be two words. It'd be thank you though. But I think sometimes people don't say that enough. Um, I, I tell Bill that all the time for a lot of stuff that Bill's done for me. So I always tell him thanks for that. So not enough not enough people appreciation. Mm, that's a good one bill you got to follow that what do you have oh that's easy my favorite word is no (laughs) (laughs) that's my favorite word for depositions for my personal life for my the answer is no that's that'd be another good one yeah it's my favorite word uh next question um if a company's listening to this and they're headed towards deposition what is their next best step to call Bill or myself, how that would be the that? next best step. How do they do that? Uh, you can get a hold of me, S Wood at courtroomsciences.com um, or my cell phone, 517-749-3019. Well, let, let, let's let's be fair. In all, in all actuality, their attorney should be, should be contacting us, right? Um, but I would say, repeat that question, Monty, so I make sure I got it. 
what is the best next step for a trucking company that may be listening to us right now uh, for them to do if they're headed towards deposition? If they're if they're already in litigation, is what you're saying? Yes. Yeah. They're a little um, bit eight ball. Yeah, uh, don't don't panic. Don't panic. Um, there's there's answers to these problems and there's a way to get through this and come out the other end. Um, everybody, you know, with any type of um, litigation, any type, um, the panic sets in and people's hair is on fire and they lose their minds. And sometimes there's finger finger pointing internally. Everybody's stressed out. A lot of people, Steve and I hear this every week, people that are going to be deposed think that maybe um, if they don't do well, they're going to lose their jobs you know, things like that. Um, um, and so anytime you have that um, emotional reaction, it completely um, inhibits really, you know, rational thought and cognition and uh, will make the depth go very, very bad. So it's, so it's stay calm, get everybody together, include your attorney and, and, and make a plan to get through it and to keep everybody calm and to get some of those. Steve and I did publish a paper on the common, what we call um, is the 13 cognitive distortions we see from witnesses. And a lot of those distortions are irrational thoughts about what's going to happen. And those thoughts get in your head and they mess you up. And then you go into deposition, you say dumb things because your thought process was wrong. And one mm -hmm. a, a good example of one of those thought processes is if I don't do well in my DEP, I'm the safety director. If I don't do well in the DEP, I'm, I'm losing my job. You know, stuff like that, right? Um a lot of those things um, can be found and corrected very, very early, well before the deposition. So it's staying calm, meeting as a group, and getting everybody's head where it needs to be. I think actually to build off of mine that I was kind of tongue in cheek, but I think Bill's point too was um, more about communication because I think you know building on that a little bit is what we see a lot of times is we'll have some witnesses come in and know that the company is in litigation, and then. They know that they're going to get deposed, but they haven't heard anything outside of that. No one shared any information with them. Yeah. No one has shared any case facts with them. They have no clue what's going on. And then all of a sudden they get, oh, by the way, you're getting deposed in two weeks. Let's get ready. And they're like, what? Like, yeah, no, they, what? they felt they felt like they've been left in the dark and no one has communicated anything with them. So it causes them sometimes to wonder what's going on with the company and does the company have their best interest in mind because- they're just not knowing what's going on. So I think, like I said, to Bill's point, communicating with the, the people that are involved as well to make them understand where are you at in the lifestyle? Why haven't you heard anything, right? Why is this, why did you, the accident happen in 2020? And all of a sudden now you're all of a sudden getting deposed in 2023. Like what was happening in those three years time, time span, just mm -hmm. once again, getting them up to understand what, what's going on in the life, life of the case. Good, good. So what do you guys wish that everyone understood about your process? Bill, you want to take this one first? That it's it's a scientific approach that defense attorneys really aren't trained to hand. I mean, we our expertise is in emotion, behavior, cognition. Um, and those are the main factors that we deal with both in jury behavior and, and, and how witnesses perform, it goes well beyond the legal aspects of the case, which is the attorney's job. Um, a lot of people say, well, I, I don't, I don't need these guys cause I just have my attorney uh, prepare me. And the attorney plays a very, very important role, but the attorney's not going to be able to handle the 
emotional behavioral cognition part. So that's what I wish people would know. By the way, can you guys see this? Yep, TikTok. Right. Yeah, is. that is a driver right now on an interstate highway broadcasting live. Is that Hitman? That's not the Hitman. The Hitman's <laughs> apparently having his sleep break. Yeah. Um, this is um Raz Ray 88. Um, this is this is this is very, very bad. So yeah, so I guess the the other thing I would say that I that would want people to know is that the the process takes time. Um, a lot of times when we when we go in, you know, we want to spend time and maybe the first hour, two hour. I mean, I spent three days with a witness, and the first day was just nothing but up focusing on emotion. Um, he had he had dealing with a lot of deep seated emotion stuff, and we had yeah. to spend a day doing that. And too often, sometimes you know the attorneys want to dive in and like, well, let's start asking mock questions. It's like, no. well, hold on, hold on, hold on, you know, because there's kind of a way we do it to go into Bill's point about being very scientific the way we do it. There's a process that we have to go through and we don't necessarily want to shortcut it just because someone can only be there for three hours or whatever. It's like, you need to take the time. You need to devote the time because it takes the time and you can't just go in there and dive right into mock questions. That's just not, not how you do it. it makes them worse. So why isn't everyone who's, whether they're in litigation or or not or could possibly be, why, why isn't everyone just hiring you guys right now? Money, money. Cut yeah, I mean, I think we we talk yeah, to attorneys money. all the time, right, Bill? That say we want to hire you, they just can't bring us in. So I don't think it's necessarily where there's a lot of people who are adverse to having us come in. I think they see the value. The problem yeah. is trying to convince their clients to spend the money to do it. Yeah, and there, and listen, let, I mean, let let's be real here. We, we don't want a, we, we don't need to be hired on every case. Um, there are small cases that it's just, it's the, the economic exposure or the situation. It just doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. Right. Um, but on these bigger cases, I mean, I'd say, you know, any exposure over a couple of million dollars that, that can get out of hand on you. And by, and by the way, you know, there's a lot of cases that started off as $1 million demands that ended up as $10 million verdicts. How do you think that happened? Mm-hmm. Yep. You said, oh, this is not going to be so bad. And then you get out maneuvered during discovery and trial prep. And then before you know it, it's a $10 million case that should have never happened uh, to be, to begin with. So, but yeah, the, the number one barrier to us and by the way, pretty much every, any, any other consulting service in life, right, is financial factors because we're certainly not cheap. Sure. Don't well, want to get cheap. On the flip side, then, what is the worst situation that you guys have come into with the best result? <laughs> or one of, if you've got an example you can give us. Well, I can give you an example. I give you examples all day of this. Because it makes me freaking nuts. I talk about it in the podcast all the time. Don't call me two weeks before trial crying. Go, oh my God. Oh my God. The case didn't settle. Holy shit. Blah, blah, blah. Come help us. And then, so now I'm dealing with okay, all the witnesses are scared shitless at this point, right? And all the depths are done. So all the mistakes they've made are in the can, typically on videotape and going to be used at trial. So now, you know, back to our sports analogies, it's like, you know, yeah, I could pull a Tom Brady, but, you know, you hand me the you hand me the ball, my own five yard line and be like, OK, you got to go 95 yards and there's, you know, 27 seconds on the clock. It's like, 
yeah, it can be done. You know, Joe Montana did that a bunch. Brett Favre did it a bunch. Tom Brady was, I mean, epic at that. That's not the way to win games, folks. I mean, it can be done, but, but, and, and I tell you what, we've pulled a lot of rabbits out of hats and ended up with either defense, flat out defense verdicts or plaintiff verdicts with really low damages, which I would consider a win too. But man, that is not the way to do things. But honestly, it's it, it happens a lot, unfortunately. It happens more, more than more than yeah. we would like, right? But I think it yeah. goes back to what we said at the very top that everybody that we've been engaged with recently has gotten a lot better of of being a lot more proactive because I think it gets to the end of that position where you don't have to worry about trying to pull a rabbit out of your hat uh, and and try to hope that well we everything tanked everything's really really bad and we're still going to trial now yeah. what the heck we're going to do? And you guys have noticed an uptick in in the demand for your services across the country recently, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. Absolutely. Awesome. Awesome. All right. So last one. Who is the greatest professional tag team wrestlers of all time? Oh, this is this is not even close. This is not even close. You knew this is this, this question is a plant like we asked him to ask this. This is not even close. This is not even close by far. <laughs> The Heart Foundation. I mean, right. it's not even that. That's like number one ranking. We shouldn't even. That, that's just a terrible question because everybody knows. What about the book? <laughs> what about the Bushwhackers? I was gonna. Okay, but I I think we should argue about second place here. I don't know. The, the Bushwhackers are pretty entertaining. <laughs> I, they they were. were they were they 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 were entertaining. Um, I, I'm okay with the with the with the Bushwhackers, but you know the whole tag team thing never really got the spotlight in many of those, you know, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't the main, it wasn't the main show. So it never got uh, probably as much attention uh, uh, as, as it should have. Um, but, uh, you know, I, you, you can't argue with the, I mean, it's the Hart Foundation. I agree. With Brent Hart being the, arguably the best technical, he would tell you the best technical, um, you know, wrestler of professional wrestling, History, great documentary on Bret Hart. You got to watch that. It's a fantastic, really goes behind the curtain, yeah. the professional uh, wrestling uh, scene and the the business. You think our business is crazy? Wow, no, this. Yeah, it's good. I've seen it. That's yeah, good. So, so he's the excellence of execution. So, I guess you're like the Kanaski Foundation of of courtroom sciences, maybe, or the yeah. wood, the Wood Warriors. I don't know if I could go with Warriors. <laughs> yeah. Wood We'll, 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 work, we'll work on it. We'll work on something. <laughs> guys, yeah. always a pleasure. Thank you guys so much for, for joining me. I uh, can't wait to see you guys again in person and next time we connect like this. So keep us posted. You're doing amazing job out there for our industry and anyone who isn't connected needs to be. So please get in touch with Dr. Steve Wood and Dr. Bill Kanaski, Portland Sciences, and we'll see everybody next time.